0: Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news, the very good news, the great news is for every single sinner. No matter how many times you said no to God, today's the day of salvation. And he invites you to turn from yourself and turn away from your sins and follow after Jesus Christ and learn what that means. Take up your cross, follow him, learn of me, he says. And so the Lord offers to every single person here today salvation, forgiveness, righteousness and a new life and hope and we'll hear that hope here in our passage this morning so acts chapter 26 we're coming uh towards the end here of the story uh, of the earliest christian church and in chapters 21 through 28 it's the story of the apostle paul he's made his way to jerusalem as the lord told him he was to go uh all the churches were saying don't go because they knew what that meant if you went to jerusalem they were going to try you and uh, arrest you beat you put you to death and Paul felt compelled to go, and so he's gone, uh, and he has uh, been mobbed in the temple. He has been mock-tried by, uh, uh, by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, Supreme Court, uh, and then he's been taken by force to save his life by the unclean Gentiles, the Romans, uh, and they've taken him down to the capital city, the Roman capital of the region of Judea, the province of Judea, to a city called Caesarea. It's the city of Caesar. And uh, he's been tried there, uh, quote, unquote, tried there by uh, the two governors, first of all, Felix, and then he's been waiting two long years, uh, or he waited two long years there in Caesarea and met with Felix multiple times throughout two years. Felix is recalled to Rome, I mentioned last Sunday, uh, because the Jews sent uh, Caesar Nero a a petition saying that Felix was very unjust and he was uh, sending the Roman centurions and and legionnaires uh, against the Jews to do reprisals, and so... Uh, they didn't, uh, Caesar didn't want uprisings in one of his provinces. It was bad for tax collecting and bad for uh, Pax Romana. And so this Festus is now the governor, and Festus has come and met with the apostle, and uh, now King Agrippa, the king, uh, this is the last king of the Herodian dynasty, and uh, he, he's come into power, uh, Festus has come into power, and, and uh, Festus has gone to Jerusalem, we saw last Sunday, to meet with the leadership, and now Herod, Agrippa II, he's the king of this kingdom that's sort of outside the promised land but on the border. And now he's traveled all the way down to Caesarea to meet with Festus and to get on good terms with him because they had a lot of money to make through Roman taxation and so forth. So chapter 26, Paul is again on uh, trial. This is his fifth defense. His fifth defense of the hope that he has, this hope of the resurrection Of the body. So, chapter 26. So, Agrippa, this is King Herod Agrippa II. So, Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. We're jumping right in where we left off last Sunday. Then, Paul stretched out his hand, a Roman rhetorical strategy to get attention, and made his defense, his apologia, his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Read Philippians chapter 3 about that. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's his hope. I myself was convinced to foreign cities. This is what Paul says of himself before he came to know Jesus. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And to these words, all of God's people say, Amen. Well, that word hope is one of those words that we often throw around, uh, isn't it? Uh, We we have hope. We hope. I hope. uh, I hope this. I hope that. Uh, What are you hoping for, even right now? I don't mean whether you're going to get uh, an end-of-the-year Christmas bonus like Clark W. Griswold did in the famous Christmas movie. We're all going to watch that here in the next few months, probably. But I mean, what are you hoping in that gets your heart beating every single morning you wake up? Be careful what you hope in, though. As one character said in a, in a movie, famous movie once, "Hope is a dangerous thing; it can get a man killed." Be careful what you hope in, and that's what we see here in Acts chapter 26. Herod the Great, Herod the Great, killed a numbered Jewish boys in his attempt to kill Jesus. He was the great grandfather of the Herod in our story. He had killed a Jewish boys under the year of uh, under two years of age in his attempt to wipe out. This promised king that these wise men who came from the east were searching for to worship. And so Herod the Great wiped children out in a mass murder. Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist in the gospel story. Herod Agrippa I killed the apostle James in Acts chapter number 12. That was Herod. this Herod Agrippa II in our story. That was his father. So what is he? What is this Herod, this next Herod, in the line of this Herodian dynasty of kings of the Jews? What is he going to do with Paul? And there's a lot for us to say here. A lot of this, Paul has, uh, this is his third recounting of his conversion narrative. And so we've seen a lot of these themes uh, previously in some previous sermons. I would encourage you uh, to go back and to to listen to those uh, earlier sermons uh, of Paul's defending himself and recounting his conversion and Jesus' miraculous appearance to him and his miraculous conversion. You see that here in the story, don't you, where where Paul, or Saul, uh, he was the strictest of the strict amongst the Jews, and his calling in life, he was convinced, was to wipe out the sect of the Nazarenes, the sect called Christians, who were infiltrating and infecting Jewish synagogues and leading people astray. And so he was trying to wipe them off the face of the planet. He was trying to arrest them, to beat them, to cause them to blaspheme, to change their minds. And it was that man whom the churches feared and dreaded that was converted in an instant by the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And he says, because of that, he's, he is now commissioned to call all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike, to turn from sin, to turn to God and to serve him in faith and repentance and good deeds. That's the same call that comes to us today that we are called to place our faith in the Lord Jesus and to live lives that are worthy of repentance, fitting with our repentance, and serve him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God calls us all to that today. But I want us to focus on this. I want to focus on why, again, why Paul is on trial. He's on trial, we read in verses 6 through 8, because he believes in the resurrection of the dead. He believes in the resurrection of the dead, or the body. In contrast to that group of Jewish leaders called the Sadducees, and they and the Pharisees had this perpetual struggle. And Paul, as a Pharisee, said he's on trial because the Sadducees didn't accept the prophets of the Old Testament. And so he says to King Agrippa himself, a Jew, who knows the Jewish customs and traditions, who knows all the ins and outs, and who, as Paul says, no doubt knows all these things that have happened because they happened on his great-grandfather's watch, the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes, the twelve tribes of the Israelites, hope to attain this resurrection as they earnestly worship night and day. That's the language of the Old Testament temple. That there was, going, there was supposed to be sacrifice and offering and prayer offered every single evening and every single morning. That's what the priests were there in the temple. Day and night in the temple, they served him. And that's why in heaven we read in Revelation that day and night the saints serve God in his Holy temple. And so they would offer morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice, incense, prayer, and offering. We're we're doing this, Paul says to to King Agrippa. All of our tribes are doing this so that they might put their hope in a resurrection. And for this hope, I'm accused by Juzo King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So, what's this hope, first of all? What's this hope that Paul is on trial for? And that he's even, as he's told us before, he is even willing to die for. What's this hope? Well, this defense that is made before King Agrippa, he's thankful for this because King Agrippa is a fellow Jew, Uh, unlike Claudius Lysias and Felix and Festus. This is a Jew who knows the traditions. He was familiar, verse 2, with the customs and controversies of the Jews, controversies such as Pharisees versus Sadducees. Such as, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And what did he do? And Paul recounts here his manner of life, verse 4, from my my youth, he says, "that that he lived according to the strictest party of our religion, as a Pharisee. Literally one who was cut off from the rest. Separated unto God from the rest of the Jews. Now, if the, if the people of God were considered the holy people in contrast to the Gentiles, but you said that you're cut off from the holy people, what are you saying about yourself? You are saying that you are the holiest of the holy, that you are a cut above the rest, the creme de la creme. You are, you are so devoted that your party is called the cut off ones. And so he states his hope there. You see verses 6 through 8 this hope that he's on trial for. Now, the world around us speaks about hope a lot, doesn't it? What's hope to, maybe even to you today, what is hope? What does it mean to hope? What does your hope put in? If you would ask, if I would ask you even to give me a definition of hope, or if I was to go outside and ask a few people, you know, what, what is hope, what are you hoping in? Uh, no doubt people would, would, would describe it and define it and try to get a handle on it and try to explain it to me, but in terms of chance, in, tr- in terms of randomness, hope, it's really a feeling, it's, you know, sort of a, a blind shot in the dark, it's a thing that you wish for, but you're not really assured is going to happen. And so we speak in our, in our, in our national sort of dialect, we, we speak of, uh, of hope in terms of political change, every single two years there's another election cycle and there's lots of hope That's put out there, isn't there? There's a lot of international speak about hope of world peace, for example. And we have a lot of personal hope, I would think. Our culture is filled with the hope of being happy. But that's the kind of hope that you're not really sure it's going to happen. I mean, how can you have world peace when you have Tens of thousands of nuclear uh, missiles that can shoot across the world in just a few minutes and wipe out the planet multiple times over? How can you really have hope of political change when people complain about this candidate and that candidate or election integrity this and that? And how can I really be happy? I mean, deep down inside, I'm really a miserable person. I might have some temporary happiness, but I don't really have a lot of hope that I'm going to be happy. That's the kind of hope that's based on feelings. And even as religious people, we might even think of hope that way. You know, I I really feel good about this decision. I really, really feel good about this decision. I really hope that this decision is going to work out for me. That's the kind of worldly hope that I'm talking about. But notice how Paul speaks of hope here. It's not just a feeling. It's not a pious wish. It's not a desire, a thing that you're kind of holding out hope for, against all odds, you know, you don't really have any real assurance of it coming to pass. In verse 6, he says, he sends on trial because of my hope in the promise, notice this, in the promise made by God to our fathers. What's the difference between the hope that you might have, kids, even today? Maybe you're hoping for a birthday, certain kind of a birthday present or Christmas around the corner here already. What's the difference between that kind of a hope and what Paul just said? I stand here on trial because of my hope, but notice what he says, in the promise made by God to our fathers. What's the difference? This is a confidence, isn't it? But, but why is he confident? What's the difference between you know, hoping so as a feeling... I really hope that this works out. And what Paul says here. His hope was in what? In in the promise made by whom? By God to our fathers. The difference is a subjective feeling versus an objective reality. We can say lots of religious things, but unless God has said it, the God who is real and who exists and who made the world and he sent his son and who raised his son and who's given us his holy word, unless God has said it, we're not really going to have much assurance so that it's really going to be true. Hope's objective here. God made a promise in the Old Testament of the resurrection of the resurrection. Of the dead. He made this promise to our fathers. How does he know that? Because those things, those promises have been recorded and passed down in these scrolls called the Old Testament. Jesus, he says, he calls him here uh, the the first fruits or the first one who is going to be raised. Jesus, as Messiah, was raised. In fulfillment of what God had said in the Old Testament to our fathers. And because of what God said is fulfilled in Christ, therefore I hope that I too will be raised. But it's not a feeling. It's not just a wish. It's not a pie in the sky. God said it. Christ fulfilled it. It's true. I hope in it. That's the difference. We, we put our hope in God. And in his promises and In this particular promise of resurrection from the dead, resurrection of the body. We're not just hoping for it, that it might happen or it may not happen after after death. No, we put our hope in it because God is sure. Our certainty subjectively is God who objectively is real. How do we know this? Because Christ is alive. He rose again. He rose again. Hope is my confident expectation then. So if you ask me, you know, how, how, how would I define hope? Pastor Danny, what's hope? My confident expectation that God is going to act in the future because of how he's already acted in the past. He's already raised up his son, Jesus Christ. That's the past. And therefore, I have a confident expectation of my resurrection because of what God has already done. If he's done it once, he's going to do it again. If you raise Jesus, he'll raise all those who believe in Jesus. If you raise up the first fruits of the whole harvest, we know for sure the farmer's going to go back and harvest the whole field. If the first fruits of a resurrection were acceptable to God, I know that I will be acceptable to God one day when I stand before him face to face. That's the difference, you see, kids. You and me, yeah. you and I can hope for... Uh, for for a nice present or an awesome party or some great, great Christmas gift or gifts, probably gifts, right? We write write our Christmas lists out, wish lists. But we're hoping for things that are just kind of in our own feelings, in our own minds, in our own hearts. But Paul is saying, no, we have a real hope, an objective hope. And so the center, we've seen this throughout the the book of Acts, the center of Paul's hope, the center of his preaching to the Gentiles and the Jews was resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Christ's body, the resurrection of Paul's body, that's his hope, and our confident expectation of what God is going to do for us in the future based on what he's done in the past of our resurrection to the resurrection on the last day. That's the Christian hope. That's the Christian hope. You know, Paul had to address this, didn't he, in his letters and in many places. But one of the places that he addresses this is in 1 Thessalonians four. Uh, if you turn there and you want to just glance down, but you can also uh, just mark it down to read later. But in one Thessalonians four, the Apostle Paul had to deal with Christians who were who had been mis uh, who had misunderstood for some reason. They they had some some teachers and preachers come through town uh, to Thessalonica and got them thinking that. Anyone who died before the second coming, they were lost. Jesus rose again, and all those who are hoping in Jesus, but who are dying in Christ, dying trusting in Jesus, but He's not yet returned, they're just they're they're lost. Only those who are alive at the, co- at the second coming are going to be resurrected. And Paul said, you know, this is wrong. This is foolish. Christ was raised your beloved loved one who is now in a grave, their body is in a grave, but their soul's with the Lord, one day the Lord's going to return that soul and that body together and raise them too. That's why he says that they're just asleep. They just look like they're sleeping. They're they're resting in Christ. And in that hope. That's our hope of resurrection. Why was Paul willing to die for that hope? Are you willing to die for this hope? Paul was. Paul was. Back in chapter 25, we saw last Sunday, verse number 11. He said, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. I do not seek to escape death. That's what he told uh, Festus. And then even earlier, he reminded the churches throughout the Mediterranean that were telling him, do not go to Jerusalem. They're going to beat you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to try you. They're going to put you to death, Paul. Don't go. Chapter 21, verse number 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die. In Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's no, that is confidence, isn't it? That subjective confidence, that feeling, we might say, again is rooted in the realities that Paul knew that Jesus was alive. No one would die. For the, if this was just, you know, he died on the cross and they, and they pretended like they rose him up from the dead and, you know, we follow this fake Messiah, wink, wink. No, he really would die for this. But why? I myself remember what he says there, back to our text in verse number 9. Uh, after all, he described himself uh, in terms of his previous life before he came to Christ or before Christ came to him, really. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did it in Jerusalem and only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Think about Stephen, back in chapters 6 and 7. Paul, they're standing, Stephen's cloak at Paul's feet. That's how much he was opposed to Jesus. I punished them often in all synagogues, tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And that's why he was on his way to Damascus with a letter in his hand from the Sanhedrin saying, Arrest, try, get these Christians to renounce their faith through any means possible, even death. But now Paul's willing to die. Paul was willing to put to death Christians who hoped in Jesus as Messiah, his resurrection. But now he's willing to himself be put to death. Why? First, again, God had made a promise to raise the dead. He says that in verses 6 and 7. And even if he died, he knew that he would be raised one day too. But the question is, well, where did God make that promise to our Father? Where did God promise in the Old Testament to resurrect the Messiah and to resurrect all people? Where did He make that promise? Do you know where? Where, is the, where are the prophecies of Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament? Are there any? Are there any? There are. Where? That's one place, yeah? In the Psalms, Psalm 18, yeah. When God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, why was Abraham willing to go through with it? Well, because God said so, but, but what did he believe about God? He believed that he could raise him even up from the dead. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us, as it explains and, uh, the meaning of Abraham's willingness to take a, a knife and plunge it into the heart of his own son on an altar. He knew that God was even able to raise him from the dead. That's why Paul can tell King, uh, King Agrippa here, you know, why do people think that it's so, so fanciful, uh, so out of the ordinary that God can raise the dead? He made the world. He made the world. Abraham's faith was not so much in his giving up Isaac unto death, but in the power of God to give Isaac back to him. And in Isaac, of course, the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah was found. And Abraham knew because he knew the promises were going to be to him and through him to all the world. That if I put to death this son, this promised son, this son that I love, the son that I have hoped for and longed for and prayed for, for years upon years upon years, if I put him to death, the promised line comes to an end. But God has made the world. God must be able to raise him from the dead. And in him to raise the messiah. Didn't Job once say, speaking of not the Messiah's resurrection, but of his own resurrection, the resurrection of all the world, in my flesh I shall see God? Don't we often think, uh, don't, don't Christians often, we, we portray to the world that, that our hope is heaven. Our hope is heaven, this, this disembodied spiritual realm that we can't see, and, and you know, it gets described in all kinds of fanciful ways. Is our hope heaven or is our hope the resurrection? Heaven's just the, we call it the intermediate state because it's just a way, it's the way on the road or on the journey to resurrection. Job said, in my flesh, I shall see God. He wasn't speaking metaphorically there, spiritually there, poetically there, merely of in the, in the flesh or the eye of his soul. No, he was saying that he believed that one day If God would strike him dead, that he would see God. There's resurrection all throughout the Old Testament. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Psalm 16. Or let your Holy One see corruption. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's David in Psalm 16. But where else in Acts is that psalm been quoted? Remember that? Earlier in chapter 2, Peter quoted that in, his, in, in one of his early sermons. Of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the resurrection of Jesus. As for me, Psalm 17 goes on to say, David, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, he's speaking here of his death, but when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And many, many, many more. The Old Testament is filled with promises and prophecies, types and shadows, pictures of a coming resurrection of the Messiah, first and foremost, and then secondly of all human beings who then will stand before God and that they will be sent into one of two places, heaven or hell. And that heaven becomes, of course, in Revelation 21, in the fullness of times, in the ultimate reality, it becomes the new heaven and the new world our loved ones who hope in Christ and who are now sleeping in their bodies but yet their souls are with God seeing face to face they are in heaven they see God they see Christ Jesus right now and one day their souls and their bodies united together bodies reconstituted don't worry about cremation don't worry about uh, falling off a ship into the ocean don't worry about uh, anything, because if God can make the world out of nothing, He certainly can take some carbon out of the ground and make a new body, can't He? Our God is powerful; He can He can do that. Don't worry about those things. People ask me all the time, Pastor. Well, you know, what about cremation, or you know, what what about you know scattering my ashes in the ocean? You know, what about putting my ashes in a fam- in my favorite place? You know, on the lake, on the river. You know, the Lord is powerful. The Lord's powerful. Don't don't, don't doubt the Lord. Don't worry about it. The Lord's going to figure it out. And so there's there's this great hope. And that hope eventually is going to be a new heavens and new earth. An earth that's resurrected. a, A world that's purified of its sin. And our bodies will see Christ in a physical place called the new heavens and the new earth. That's Paul's hope. He was willing to die for it because God had said it over and over and over again to the fathers. But then secondly, God has fulfilled this in Jesus. Notice that, verse 23. God has fulfilled this in Jesus. The Christ, the Messiah, must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, the first fruits, as he calls that later on in 1 Corinthians 15, who have proclaimed light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I was not disobedient, he goes on to say, Agrippa verse uh, 19 I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision who was his heavenly vision of who appeared to Paul Jesus Jesus the resurrected Jesus so he hoped in this and he was willing to die for this resurrection because God had promised it and secondly because God had kept it true and fulfilled it in Jesus Christ the tomb is empty the Lord is alive, and Paul saw Him with his very eyes. Jesus, our Lord, is the first fruits of God's promise to raise the dead. Kids, I saw on the freeway uh, this past week, driving uh, down down by uh, uh, down in Carlsbad, just down, down the freeway here, uh, that the strawberries and uh, the pumpkins are coming, right. The strawberries are coming. You can go pick your, fa- your favorite strawberries. They're super expensive, I think, but uh, you can pick strawberries. And usually, people go out there the first time that they're allowed to, and, and uh, you, know, you get kind of like the report. You, know, you read about this online in the local newspaper. You know, how did the strawberries taste? You know, What was the first pickings of, of the Carlsbad strawberry uh, field? You know, were they good this year? Were they big? Were they juicy? Were they ripe? Were they red? Were they plump? Were they this, that? And you, know, you can get a sense of the rest of uh, your experience of Carlsbad, uh, Strawberry Heaven, uh, based on the first fruits, as it were. And so we see that here, uh, where where Paul describes Jesus as the first to rise from the dead. And again, he's the first, the first fruits. And if God accepts that first fruits as pleasing to him, you know that God will accept you as pleasing when he raises you up too. This is why, again, hope is not just some religious feeling it's not just a religious feeling would you be willing to to stake your life on your particular religious feelings this is why hope is not just again some random chance thing are you willing to die for a cosmic lottery Paul was willing to die for the hope of the resurrection, and so should we, because there's a real empty tomb in Jerusalem. That's why Paul tells the king here, verse 26, none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. What a great line. This has not been done in a corner. What's he saying there about the Christian faith? What's he saying there about about Jesus? It's public stuff. It's 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 non-verifiable. And if it's non-verifiable, it actually happened. There's evidence for it. There's no way to really verify the, the visions and the religious experiences of, say, Joseph Smith, because this was a, a, a claimed purported vision revelation to one man in private. How can it there's it was not done out in public. It was literally done in a corner. The resurrection is not that same way. The same thing with Islam. It's a religion of one man. A One, one man gets revelation. It's, it's non, it's, you can't falsify it. Because it happened to one man, or at least it's claimed to have happened to one man. American Christian, sort of sub-Christian or on the side cult type groups such as The Seventh-day Adventist and Ellen G. White. You cannot argue with someone's experience because you weren't there. It literally happened in a corner. The Buddha, Scientology, and so forth. These are religions of one person who make claims that God has revealed things to them, but no one can really verify or, 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 or falsify those things. And so it's... That literally is a kind of a worldly hope. Throwing your lot in with someone who says something has happened, rather than the Christian faith. These things have not been done in a corner. Why do you think the Christian faith is the most persecuted faith on the face of the planet? Why do you think atheists like Richard Dawkins, still, I see this this even this past week, still is giving interviews trying to make the Christian faith sound silly. Why would you be arguing against a God that you say doesn't exist? To say that we are the insane, crazy ones because we believe in God, but isn't the person more crazy and insane who argues against a God he says doesn't exist? At least that's my opinion of it. The Christian faith is a public religion. These things happen. There is evidence of these things happening. And one of the great ones, of course, is described here. God said things in the Old Testament to the Jews, and those things have come to pass in Jesus Christ. It's black and white. It's all or nothing. You're for Christ or you're against Christ. It's as simple as that. And you follow after him. And following after him, you come to realize what it means, like, like Paul, to have lived a life before Christ. And you come to understand more and more what it means to be a forgiven si- a sinner who's saved by grace through faith. You come to realize more and more how foolish your life was before and how blessed this life is now. You come to realize those things. You don't learn those things necessarily overnight, but you follow Christ and you learn these things. Does the world need this hope, loved ones? God gave promises. Christ fulfilled them. Paul put his hope and staked his life on them. Does the world need this hope of resurrection? Paul here challenges Agrippa and his challenge should challenge us. Look at Festus's response in verse 24 again. As he was saying these things in his defense, uh, Festus, this is a governor of the Roman province of Judea, said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're going crazy. But Paul speaks, as we say in our time, truth to power. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. But the king knows about these things. and To him I speak boldly. And I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice again, for this has not been done in a corner. Directing himself back to the king, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Is the gospel, brothers and sisters, is the gospel that you put your hope in and your faith in and your trust in and your, you stake your life on, is the gospel the good news that God forgives sinners and he promises to raise those sinners on the last day to live with him forever and ever, is the gospel so personal to you that it's not just in your head but in your heart like Paul here? This, this is not just merely learning that he has, you see He's been accused of just having head knowledge and and book learning. Paul, you're being driven to madness because you're learning. No, Paul says, I would to God, I pray to God. This is a heart thing, that all of you would become like me. Is the gospel so personal to you that it's a matter of your heart? And do you, Christian, do you today have a gospel, a good news, a a message to your unsaved family members and loved ones and co-workers and neighbors and friends and teammates and classmates? Do you have a gospel that is so a part of your heart that you desire it for those very close to you? I would to God, Paul, again, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, Is your gospel that personal? It's a matter of your heart, not just your head. It's both, but it's not just one or the other. It's both. And is your gospel so personal that that you desire it for those who don't have it? Like Paul here. If that's the case, brothers and sisters, family, church family here today, are you, or and, and, and am I, are we, praying specifically for specific persons that they would ask us a question, that their time in their, their life spent with us would lead us to ask them a question, to be able to spark conversation, to begin to move them, From unbelief to belief? Are you praying specifically for specific people for a specific moment to be able to share with them your hope that you personally hold in your heart and that you personally desire them to have? And are we as a church, are we as a church full of this hope of resurrection? We've confessed it this morning in the Apostles' Creed. We believe the resurrection of the body, the life of the lasting. And are we collectively are we praying that we as a church family will receive our next convert or converts to profess their faith, to be baptized, our next children to baptize, our next hungry believers who desire the pure the purity of the gospel? Are we praying for them? You may not know who they are yet, but are you praying for that and for them? But yet in specific ways. If your hope is the resurrection of the body and, your ho- and, and if your trust is in this hope of Jesus and all that He says, then it must, like Paul, it must for us, brothers and sisters, it must. Grip not just our heads, but our hearts. It must not just move our lips to say things, but move our hands and feet to do things. As Paul even describes here, as he calls upon the world, to turn from themselves. Repent. Turn to God. Performing deeds and keeping their repentance. He goes on to say that this comes, as he says, this hope comes through faith. We must have a life of faith and of repentance. We must speak the word, and we must live out the word. We must know the word in our heads, and we must desire that word to come out of us, from our hearts to others. Amen. May the Lord give us such confidence, give us such zeal, give us such a heartfelt desire that we can say to any who hear us and who know us, would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Let's pray. Our great God, you've made the world and everything in it. How can anyone think in such a thing so weak and so impossible, so foolish that God can raise the dead? That's our hope. That's our trust. We put our lives upon this. And we do pray, Lord, for the church across the world that is putting its life on the line daily. Daily, Lord. For the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of their bodies too. Give them this same courage. And may we learn from them, Lord, even just a little bit. To have just a small amount of the passion of our brothers and sisters in the Far East, in Indonesia, in parts of Uh, in parts of Africa, in the Middle East. May we, Lord, have such a zeal and a heartfelt desire as they to see the world come to know Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, move us to that end to pray specifically and courageously to open our lips and to invite people to follow Jesus along with us. We ask it all in his wonderful name and all of God's people say, amen. Let's uh, sing together in response this morning, preparing our minds and hearts to receive the word. And uh, on the other side of that insert, it's a little bit light. I apologize for that. Hopefully, it's uh, visible enough. We can sing it out. Uh, It's a setting of Paul's great uh, armor of God text in Ephesians chapter six, a great passage for us uh, to sing as we hear about the gospel and sharing it and doing battle even with spiritual darkness. Uh, in sharing that very same gospel. So Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord, let's stand.